Now this evening we come to a more detailed study of Genesis chapter 1. You will remember that we have studied in a much more brief way these first three chapters of Genesis. We have looked at the meaning of each chapter and we have found something of the Holy Spirit's purpose in giving us two accounts of creation, one in Genesis chapter 1 and the other in Genesis chapter 2. We have also looked at some of the words used in these three chapters, the names used for God, the, na- the words <coughs> used for uh, to create, to make, two different words used for to make with a very distinct meaning. All we can simply say this evening is that we have found that Genesis 1 deals with what we have called the fact of creation. That is the question of the origin of creation and of humanity. Where did it come from? And was there, is there a clue anywhere in the scripture to method? If there is, it will be found in Genesis 1. There we have the fact of creation, where it all originated, it's the source behind it, and something of the method in it. In Genesis 2, there's an entirely different structure. And the whole purpose there is not the fact of creation, but the purpose of creation. And because it is the purpose of creation, it answers the question, what is the goal of creation and humanity? What is the end that is in view? And why? Why? Always. Found in Genesis 2. And then, of course, Genesis 3 deals with the explanation of the present and the answer to it. Why then, if God had this great purpose, if he brought all this into being, why is it that the whole thing seems to broken down and collapse? There seems to be a contradiction uh, today. Genesis 3 supplies us with the answer. You remember how we found how very, very wonderfully the Holy Spirit has used the titles, different names for God, Uh, in those three chapters. How the Holy Spirit uses one particular name in chapter 2 and in chapter 1 he uses another. How he uses words that have all bound up with the purpose of each of these chapters. Now, we come to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to say straight away that (coughs) there are a, a lot of difficulties in Genesis chapter 1. I do not believe um, as a child of God that it is honouring to try and gloss over the difficulties, the honest difficulties that we find within the word of God. We have got to find the difficulties, acknowledge the difficulties and go on in faith. And Genesis chapter (coughs) 1 has certain difficulties. 
we, in the course of this evening, we shall mention some of those difficulties. We will not be able to mention all of them, but we shall be able to mention some of the difficulties. There are four different views about Genesis chapter 1. And I want to spend just a few moments this evening um, outlining to you those different views. The first, if they're all connected with the six days. You find in Genesis chapter 1 that there are six days mentioned. And you will find that they are terminated by this little phrase, there was evening and morning, uh, day one, and then you had there was evening and there was morning, the sec uh, day second, or second day, and then third day, fourth day, fifth day, and then the sixth day. Now that's we shall look at in a moment. <clears throat> Around these, of course, there have come to be a multitude of interpretations. The first that we shall look at is simply that um, these six days are meant to be, not to be understood in our um, understanding of a day. That's a view that has been held for, I suppose, something like over, well over a thousand years. Uh, in the church, that these days mentioned in Genesis 1 are periods of unspecified periods of time. Uh, in the last hundred years, people have called them geological ages. Um, they have um, felt that these uh, six days here in Genesis 1 are what is spoken of in another place. A day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And particularly about 150 years or more ago, when um, there was so much uh, discovery concerning the universe, and um, a reaction uh, which was to throw overboard the truth and the authority of the Bible, um, there was quite a number of people who tried to meet it with an apology. For the world. And they sought to explain this Genesis chapter 1 as not being days as we know them. They said, oh, well, we quite agree. You have found evidence now that the creation couldn't have been created in a week, one week, in six days of a week. Um, therefore, we believe that these days are just figurative uh, ways of, of um, of an unspecified period of time. Now, that presents us with some difficulties. And the first is simply, what about light in verse 3 and then verse 14? Are we to understand then that light was in existence without the sun and without the moon? If these are long ages of unspecified time, then evidently um, quite a, a long period elapsed between light coming into existence and the sun uh, coming into existence. 
That is one difficulty. Another difficulty is this little phrase that reoccurs again and again through this chapter. There was evening and there was morning. Why is this reiterated? Is it, as the people who believe in this particular view say, just poetic? Just, as it were, trying to clearly define an era of time, an epoch. Why does it say there was an evening and a morning? And as someone has pointed out, does it mean that there was a, a period of daylight which covered perhaps thousands of years and then a period of night which covered thousands of years? Because if so, all life as we know it would have died. There are a lot of difficulties in this period of trying to look upon the, this chapter as six periods of time. Then again, there is the difficulty of the sixth day. Do we then believe that that was a geological age? And what about man? Did he come into existence in the last few hours of a very long period of time? Or was he uh, a process of evolution that sort of slowly evolved over this period of time and emerged suddenly uh, by the word of God at the end of it? There's some difficulties there. And what about the seventh day of rest? Are we to believe that man was created in this sixth period and then the seventh day he, there was a period of something, some unspecified period of time of the Sabbath? when nothing was done and nothing was allowed to be done, but all had to rest, including men. I see there are some difficulties, you see. We obviously would have to take the first six days as periods of time, and we would have to take the seventh as one actual day as we know it. <coughs> so there you have some difficulties. I'm not going to say any more. I leave you with the difficulties and I leave you with the view. The second view is another one which was taught even as early as the Church Fathers, which of course goes right back almost to the beginning. And that is what we call the catastrophe view. Uh, it is simply that between Jenna, uh, verse 1 and verse 2, there was a most terrible catastrophe. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And people usually say here now, uh, that means everything was, in the beginning, a product of God's creation. It was beautiful. It was something that was very full and wonderful. And then when we come to verse 2, the earth was waste and void and darkness was upon the face of the earth. And there have been many who felt that between uh, those two verses, a terrible catastrophe took place which we find out later on in the Word of God, to be the fall of the angel, the fall of Satan. And this has affected the original creation of the heavens and the earth, so that the whole thing was ruined. Now, there's a good deal more in this than just that. We can look into it if you'd you want to together this evening a little more. We find, first of all, in um, you look very carefully at the actual words that have been used in verse 2. The earth 
was waste and void. It can be translated without form and void. Formlessness, or it can be translated confusion or desolation. The other word means emptiness. The most interesting thing of all is in Isaiah 45, and upon this um, is this view that I've mentioned is built. No, it's not Isaiah 45. No, I can't. That's not Isaiah 45. Hmm? 35, thank you. 45. Thank you. That's right, 45 verse 18. Yes, I'm looking at you now. Could you read that, please, someone? Someone read that, please. The Lord here says, I created it not a waste. I created it not a waste, but formed it to be inhabited. The folk who believe that, the, that there was a catastrophe between these two verses, they hear the Lord did definitely says to us that he didn't create it a waste. But then the other folks say, but he, that's exactly what he, he's not saying. He's saying he uh, created it, its waste was not his meaning. It was a means to an end. But the most interesting of all is found in Jeremiah and verse 4, chapter 4 of Jeremiah and verse 23. Now this is very interesting because it uses exactly the same words as used in Genesis 1 and verse 2 and Jeremiah is describing the result of sin. And he says, I beheld the earth and lo, it was waste and void and the heavens and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved to and fro, and so on. He's describing um, sin and judgment upon sin, and he uses the very three things. Waste, void, no light. And you've got those here. It is also interesting, and again, people who believe in this particular view of Genesis 1 always bring this up, God is not the author of confusion, which is the word here. Confusion. He is the God of order, not of confusion. Peace 
and order. Secondly, he is not the God of emptiness. Do you remember in Matthew 12, the Lord Jesus gives a power and speaks of the emptiness of a man being the very ground for evil spirits to come in. And thirdly, it says in 1 John chapter 1, in him there is no darkness at all. Those three things are very, very interesting. And um, they are brought up again and again to explain uh, this chapter, this first chapter of Genesis. But there are quite a number of difficulties with that as well. Um, for instance, there is no real evidence that there was such a catastrophe. And um, recently, that particular view has been losing ground very, very rapidly because um, it is just cannot be found that there has been at any time such a catastrophe in the history of this present universe as we know it. Anyway, we leave that. The third view, and by the way, the third view in my estimation, uh, scripturally, has far less difficulty than any of the others, and that is simply the, the first feeling about this altogether, that the earth was created in six literal days. That might raise a lot of difficulty in other ways, but it doesn't raise any difficulties um, scripturally, nor does it raise any difficulties spiritually. Uh, there, of course, are quite a number of things which we could uh, raise. For instance, if it was six days, then man was no sooner created than he entered into the Sabbath, which is rather remarkable. And there are one or two other things about these six days that um, in a moment I shall be mentioning to you. But certainly um, that view uh, is more in keeping uh, with the Word of God uh, than the other. The other view is one that is an ancient one that has been lost and has only just recently really um, been once again recovered. And that is that this chapter, Genesis 1, is not the record of creation literally in six days but is the narrative of the creation given in six days. In other words, God revealed how the creation came into being and humanity as such and he took six days to do it. Um, it was as it were in six successive stages that it was to Enoch that God revealed all this that we have in Genesis 1 and it took him six days to reveal it and on the seventh day he made Enoch rest and he himself desisted uh, from his work that's an interesting view and at any rate it is um, it has something to be said for it in that it clears up quite a number of difficulties it creates one or two others for instance 
you look at it quite carefully and you'll find one or two things which perhaps you've never really noted before. The first is the evenings and the mornings. You've got those in verse 5, you've got them in verse 8, you have them in verse 13, in verse 19, in verse 23, and in verse 31. There was evening and there was morning. That if this is the narrative of creation, then those evenings and those mornings can be taken perfectly literally. There was evening and uh, there was morning. It's always a very wonderful thing that in the Bible, evening always comes before morning. In our reckoning, we always talk of a morning and an evening, but the Bible always speaks of an evening and a morning. There's a spiritual principle and truth embodied in that, which is very, very wonderful for any of you who may be going through a difficult time. Evening always comes first. Uh, day always follows night in the scripture. That aside, that gets over that difficulty. Does God have to rest at night? Since man, according to all these other views, man was not even in existence, why did God have to have a sleep? Why did he, as, as it were, have to rest at night? God doesn't need an evening to have to refresh himself and get back his energy again. And since man was only created on the sixth day, then why all this need about the evening? Why the stress upon the evening and the resting all the time? There's something very interesting. It says in Scripture quite clearly, God does not slumber. He is not weary, it says. He does not need sleep, the scripture says quite clearly. Then again, note that it never says in verse 5, the first day, that's how most people read it. See, God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning, the first day. It doesn't say that. It literally is in the Hebrew, day one. In verse 8, it says, day second, or second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, and then a very interesting thing. It says, day the fifth. So it does not mean that this, in which the light was the first day, it means evidently that it was the beginning of a series. They were a particular series of six it was. It was day one. And then after that it was the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, and then the sixth. That's very interesting because if it is the narrative of creation, that is perfectly in accord with that. Then why was there a need of a seventh day's rest as far as God was concerned? Was, as we have said, was he tired and weary through the creation? I think that it is quite clear in the Word of God, if you um, look it up, uh, it says in Mark 2, quite clearly, Mark 2 and verse 16 18, that the Sabbath was created for man, and man, it wasn't man for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. It was instituted for man's benefit, and it's the um, evidence of God's everlasting love and care for man. The principle of the Sabbath. That's also, again, very, very interesting. The note, of course, that if, 
Adam had been created on the sixth day, he really had very little need to rest. Only barely a few hours old when he had to have his first day's rest. Whereas if this was the narrative of creation, then six whole days have gone of quite full instruction and um, there came round the day when uh, he rested. Then note something else which is very, very interesting. It re it's reiterated again and again. The little phrase God said. If you just go through this first chapter and underline every time it says God said. Now, why was God saying, since man did not even come into being till the sixth day, what was God speaking for all the time? God said this, God said that, God said the other. Now, of course, we know there's a great principle behind that we're going to draw out of them. But why did God, why was God speaking all the time? And even more interesting, for it's not only just in those few verses, why did it continually speak of God calling? God called this, this, and that, that. Was there any need for God to have to give names to things? Are we just going to take this as fellowship with God in the Trinity, as it were, just having fellowship together, talking, as it were, of these things? What really is, is behind all this? Why did God say, let us make man? It's very, very interesting. Why is it, for instance, that we take all the rest in one way, and then in verse 29 it says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb yielding seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, there we all realize God was speaking to man. Because just a little earlier it says, God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful. Why do we take uh, verse 29 in one way, and the rest of the, the, the use of this little phrase, God said, or God called in another? If it is the narrative of creation, it is most instructive that God was speaking. He was instructing. He um. was calling this, this, and that, that. It was as if he had man before him and he'd got in hand his education. Very, very interesting there again. Now, of course, there are difficulties to this feeling. And that's why we cannot, with great joy and dogmatism, say, this is it. The difficulties are, of course, found in um, Genesis 2 and the first three, uh, first four verses. Heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished, finished his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day and, and all his, from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because that in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. And then, of course, that is quoted in Exodus 20, in Exodus 31, in Hebrews 4, and verse 4, and quite, in quite a few other places in the Word, that, again, is reiterated. And it would seem to suggest that God made the heavens and the earth in um, six days. But the interesting uh, 
thing is that the little word made is the word asa, which is used 2,500 times in the Old Testament. And it's the word that we laughed about the other day when we were talking. We said it is the word in Scripture which has the greatest latitude of meaning. And it can only, its meaning can only be determined by its context. What was God doing in the six days? That determines um, its, its context, its, its meaning in this, the context determines its meaning in this particular phrase. God, in six days, God made. Wiseman said here that he would put it this way, in six days, on the seventh day God finished his work which he had made, rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. God blessed it. Um, he uh, would have put it, the word did in, uh, to do. Not necessarily mean that it was the creation that was <coughs> in view, but the um, narrative. It was the work that's in view. God did something in six days. And he finished it on the sixth day and desisted, ceased from it, on the seventh. And uh, Wiseman says, you take that every time it comes up and you find it, it certainly does fit in. I have looked through them all, I've checked it all up, and he's certainly right that it's quite possible to take that as the meaning in Exodus 20, in Exodus 31, in Hebrews 4.4, you can definitely understand it as meaning that God did something in six days and he ceased from it on the seventh. Well, there you are. That's all rather dry, I feel, at times, and rather uh, boring. And there's been a tremendous amount of controversy about those chapters. One very interesting thing emerges, and that is what's up here on the board. That Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, verse 4, is, do you remember when we spoke about the other week, the most ancient form of a Hebrew poetry. It is what is called a parallelism. It has an introduction and the key to the parallel in Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. Then you have three days, and then you have paralleled with the three days a second series for three days. Then you have a conclusion and you have a colophon, which was the ancient literary method giving the date, the title, and the author. You've got that in four, in chapter two and verse four. These are the generations. This word generations is polydot in Hebrew, which just means history. The Septuagint translates it, the book of the history. Quite clearly, the book of the history uh, of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God did heaven and earth. So the Lord God is the author. The date is when he gave this revelation and the title is the book of the history of the heavens and the earth. Here you've got in day one you have light just generally. In the fourth day, you have the light, which corresponds to light. The second day, you have water and atmosphere. In the fifth day, you have life in the water and life in the atmosphere. Third day, you have land and vegetation. And the sixth day, which corresponds to it, you have animals and man. 
Here you have without form, and that's the key to the parallelism. Without form, here is form coming into being, as it were, and empty. Here is fullness in the emptiness. Something, at any rate, to investigate, isn't it? It's very, very, very interesting. It gets over a tremendous number of difficulties. It's why, how there was light long before the sun uh, came. Uh, it's extremely interesting that if this is, as it were, the narrative of creation, if ever it is, one thing we can be clear, it is in poetic form, that first chapter. And in it may well be the key to uh, our understanding of now to get away from what seems to be so dry. What conclusion can we come to over Genesis 1? The first thing is this. Creation is the result of the sovereign activity of God. Let's now just uh, put aside all these views and ideas and let's come to one or two conclusions about this first chapter. Creation is the sovereign activity of God. Genesis, you look at Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God. That is, it all begins with God. Now, you can never get beyond that fact. And that is in a, written from beginning to end of the Bible. This little phrase that comes up again and again, the Lord that made heaven and earth. The it was a sovereign activity. You know, in the beginning, this little phrase, in the beginning God, contains within it, oh, so much. What was there in the beginning? We know there was the Trinity, the triune God, in a fellowship of love and intercommunion and interdependence. We know that. In the beginning, God. Another thing we know is this, that there was a tremendous purpose formed in the heart of God from before the foundation of the world. And out of that purpose in God, all this sovereign activity, as far as creation goes, came out. Something very, very wonderful. In the beginning, the cross was foreordained. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That was in the beginning. That found its rise in the heart of God. It was no mere hap. It was no afterthought of God. It was no swiftly engineered answer to meet the situation. In the beginning, God had planned the lamb slain. He foresaw everything. And furthermore, you find the church in that first few words. In the beginning, God. That's where you find the church. Now, I know that might bring difficulties again about our free will and everything else, but there's one thing that's absolutely clear, that the beginning of the church is in God. It begins with God. In him it took its rise. In him, it, as it were, was conceived. Out of him it was brought forth. It's one of those great thoughts of God, the church. In the beginning, God. So there, in the first thing we can come to about Genesis 1 is this, that creation is the outcome 
of the sovereign activity of God. We shall look at method in a moment. But it began with God. It was sovereign activity. The second thing you want to note is that creation is by the word of God. And that comes out very, very clearly. Putting aside all these different conflicting views, one thing emerges, and that is that this whole natural creation came by the word of God. He spake and it was done. Now you look up some scriptures here. You look up Hebrews 11 and verse 3. Hebrews 11 and verse 3. By faith we understand that the world have been framed by the word of God. Framed by the word of God. So that what is seen has not been made out of things which appear. One thing we get very clearly is that the creation is by the word of God. Now, again, in 2 Peter and 3, chapter 3 and verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that there were heavens from of old, and an earth compacted out of water and amidst water by the word of God. And then compare it with verse 7. But the heavens that now are, and the earth, by the same word have been stored up for fire. So everything is by the word of God. If we first get it absolutely clear that Genesis chapter 1 teaches us that creation is the result of the sovereign activity of God, the second thing we learn is that creation is by the very word of God. You'll find that right through the word, the power of the Word of God. It is the most wonderful thing to just sit, sit back and meditate upon. I know the, there are many who have very real difficulties, but you know, when a person's been saved, and when a person can believe in the Incarnation, and then in the Resurrection, and then they have experienced birth, new birth, being born of the Spirit of God. Is it a harder thing to believe that this whole creation is here by the Word of God? I think that it is very clearly stated in 2 Corinthians and, cha and chapter 4 that it is a harder thing, if, if, if anything, certainly no uh, easier for God to create uh, a heaven and an earth than to bring someone into, a new, into the new creation. It is contrasted with that very thing. God who commanded light to shine out of darkness hath shined into our hearts. The same word of God which brought it all into being is the agent by which a man or a woman is converted. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Isn't that wonderful? I don't think we put enough upon God's word. I mean the word of God's mouth. Because 
um, it, it lies behind everything. I don't have to point out to you, do I, that in every single move in the history of humanity it has begun with the voice of God. Whether it has been right back in the beginning when he called everything into existence, created it all, whether it was the creation of humanity, or whether it was Noah. It was by the word of God that God appeared to him, spoke to him. We have an ark. Or whether it was Abraham, our God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham and spake unto him. Spoke unto him, told him to get out. Get thee out. It was by the word of God that a new movement in the history of God's dealings with men was brought into being. Moses is another remarkable example of the word of God. I am that I am. Go and say I am hath sent you. It was the word of God. So it is, if you want the Ten Commandments, if you want the tabernacle, God's dwelling place amongst men, but supremely the Lord Jesus is the Word of God. So you see, all things are by the Word of God. That's the second thing we learn about creation. It is by the Word of God. The third thing we learn about creation is that it was made through the Lord Jesus and for the Lord Jesus. And that's a very, very important thing. It is the key to the whole um, question. John chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3. Could someone read that please? John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. And then 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. No, that's not right. Yes, Colossians 1, 16. Could someone read that, please? For in him were all things created, in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible for the thrones or dominions, or principalities or power, all things have been created through them yes. and us. And then 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. Yet to us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we unto him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. And then Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. Someone read that, please. So the third thing we can learn is that the whole creation was made through the Lord Jesus Christ. He was there. It was through him that it was all created. And he was the goal of it. That is most important. It was for him. Through him and for him. The fourth thing we learn about creation is in Genesis 1 and verse 2. The Spirit of God Brooding, brooding upon the waters. 
says the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The word is fluttered or hovered or brooded upon the face of the water. Now, you come now to a very, very important point. The creation is the result of the sovereign activity of God. It was by the word of God. It was through the Lord Jesus and for the Lord Jesus. Now we come to the Holy Spirit. And we link three things. The Word of God, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. We have to link those three in creation. For the Spirit is always, the Spirit of God is always the agent of creation. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is always the agent in any creative activity of God. Always. If it is through the Lord Jesus and for the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit is always the agent. Thus, you see, the Lord Jesus coming into this earth was by the Spirit of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He, he was baptized, as it were, into his ministry in the Holy Spirit. Water, yes, but it was the Holy Spirit that came upon him for the ministry, for his servant. It was by the eternal Spirit that he offered himself up to God on the cross. And it was by the Spirit that he was raised, the Spirit of him that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead. How was the church created? through Christ and for Christ. But who was the agent? The Holy Spirit at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was come, the church had come. The church was in the Holy Spirit, you see. And the Holy Spirit is the agent. So it's not only uh, naturally that the, Ho the Holy Spirit is the agent of creation, but also spiritually. Third person of the Trinity is the agent of all the ac creative activity of God wherever you find God at work. And then the last thing I want to say about this, um, the conclusion that we can come to about this chapter is found in a verse we've already read in Hebrews 11 and verse 3. It is the absolute necessity of faith. By faith we understand that the world has been framed by the word of God so that what is seen has not been made out of things which appear. I do feel that we make our greatest mistake in getting onto too apologetic ground. We have all the time defending, all the time apologizing, all the time trying to meet um, uh, our criticism, continual criticism from different quarters. Uh, and we can't do it. And when we're on the defensive, we generally lose ground anyway. You see, it's by faith we understand. And whereas human knowledge is changing all the time, and as it were, finding that it was wrong so many years ago, and having to modify its views, and indeed sometimes having to leave um, old ground altogether, the Word of God has never yet been proved wrong. Though it's been contradicted quite openly, quite dogmatically, categorically, 
in the end it's always come out on top. And so it is by real faith, not stupid faith. I mean that kind of stupidity that some people consider to be faith. But by real, genuine faith, which is the gift of God, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. That's the attitude to come to Genesis chapter 1. It may have many difficulties. Those difficulties may have been placed there by the Holy Spirit with the very reason of drawing out faith in us. But we've just got to take the ground of clear-cut faith with God over the whole question of the Word of God. It's not just something which is purely rational, purely logical, answer to everything found everywhere. It's not that at all. We've got to come to the Word of God by faith. And by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. And the things which have been made, uh, which do, which are seen, have been made out of what does not appear. That, I say, is very, very wonderful. Now, going back to Genesis chapter 1, having got that clearly into our minds and hearts, that it, it's God's work, and it's a sovereign activity of God, let's have a look at this chapter a little more closely. The first thing I want you to note is that the possibility of a gradual process. This is very interesting. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to apologise for anything. I'm looking at the word of God in itself and the meaning of the very words the Holy Spirit has used. There is within the first chapter of Genesis the possibility of a gradual process. You look at these verses. Verse 9. God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. There's the possibility of a process there. The waters being gathered and the dry land appearing. Then again, look at verse um, 11. God said, let the earth put forth grass, herbs yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. Now, we can't say it in good English, but the word here is, God said, let the earth be caused to sprout or caused to germinate. The idea is that by the word of God, the forces were let loose in the earth, which somehow germinated things. Things started to sprout. Now, there's the possibility of a process there. It's not as if uh, there was suddenly... The, uh, we've got to get clear. Do we believe that God stood, as he well could, uh, and said... Let this be, and it immediately happened there, fully grown trees, fully grown plants, fully grown animals, birds, fish, all just there suddenly. Well, I perfectly believe that God was perfectly able to do that, not beyond his power, perfectly able to do it. But what does the word of God say? It suggests a process. God said, and what did he say? What happened? It all began with the word of God. But what was the method? It's very interesting. Let the earth be caused to sprout vegetation, herbs, fruit trees, 
that's very interesting again. Look again at um, verse 20. God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. Again, the word is simply, let the waters be caused to swarm. Forces let loose by the word of God. And something happening in the very waters. And birds. Then verse 24. God said, let the earth bring forth. You see how, how God spoke? Let the earth bring forth. Not I put on the earth, but let the earth bring forth. Something was caused to come out of the earth. Well, what came out of the earth? Um, we read here, living creatures of their kind, cattle and creeping things. Isn't that interesting? They came out of the earth. Now look over to Genesis 2, and you'll find something else very interesting. Verse 5. No plant of the field was yet in the earth, no herb of the field had yet sprung up. See that? Sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So evidently all this cre vegetable life, as it were, was waiting for rain. It was going to spring up according to a method. That's very, very wonderful. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, God planted a garden. There's the possibility of a process. Verse 9. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. So you have the possibility of a process of a gradual process. Now, let's be quite unbiased as we come to the Word of God in this way. See what the Word of God itself has to teach us here. What I do want you to notice is this, that that word to create, bara in Hebrew, which is always used of the sovereign activity of God, that is, it was a new thing, comes in verse 1, at the beginning of all existence, Verse 20, at the beginning of animate life. And then again in verse 27, the beginning of human life. What we learn by that is simply that behind it all is the sovereign activity of God. The method may in some cases be a method of process, gradual process. But in every case, it goes back to the Word of God, and behind the Word of God, the sovereignty of God himself. You see that? That's very, very important to learn. Now, let's just look together at some of these verses. First, let's look together at, um, from verse 3 to verse 5. Could someone read that, please? You see from these verses that God said that he commanded the light to be. It's interesting in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says God commanded light to shine out of darkness. 
And the suggestion in the Word of God is always that light was there, something that was brought into manifestation. Something that was, as it were, brought into manifestation, rather really than existence. Some energy, some force, which, as it were, was being manifested as light. This you'll find throughout the world. I have found nowhere in the world that it says any place light was created. It always speaks of light being brought out, as it were, into visibility, if you want to put it that way, being manifested. Let light be. That is how the Hebrew puts it. Let light be, and light was. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God commanding light to shine out of darkness. Now, you know, I expect most of you know, you know better than I do, that light, heat, electricity, galvanism, are all different manifestations of one basic force, or one basic energy. There is one basic energy behind them all, and they have different manifestations. I believe that the Word of God teaches quite simply that God is that energy. And that where it refers to God as light, it does not only mean spiritual light, though primarily it means spiritual light. God is light. Lord Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It's interesting that there's coming a day when uh, there'll be no need of um, the sun or the moon as we know it. That's going to be abolished. And it says quite expressly that the, the Lord, God, and the Lamb are going to be the light thereof. In other words, there's going to come a day when this energy in some way is going to be used, uh, given a, another manifestation. We're going to have light, but somehow or other it's not going to need the sun or the moon as we know it. It is extremely interesting. It uh, rather wonderful, I think, to investigate that more deeply, uh, the whole question of what this basic elementary energy is out of which everything has come into existence. That is most interesting. I'm afraid I'm not skilled enough nor intelligent enough to be able to um, speak about that long enough. But there's one thing we do know, and that is right at the heart of everything created, whether visible or invisible. And remember, there are many things created that are not visible. There is a basic energy, or life, which, as it were, finds its uh, manifestation in all different ways. I understand that our very bodies are but the manifestation of that basic energy. We could only see it where I understand so many little particles sort of hanging together some way or another. Um, just an expression of, 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 of energy. And everything that we see is just, just the same. Now the Word of God clearly tells us that in Him all things hold together or consist. He is the energy that all this is just the expression of. Even furnishings, even everything is just purely... Um, the expression of an energy. Now Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. 
Wonderful, all this was um, discovered as such. He said, in him, that is God, we live, and he was speaking to unsafe people, we live, we move, we have our being. That is, unsafe people live in God, move in God as such, and have their being in God. That is the amazing thing. It's a thing this 20th century has forgotten. And it's absolutely absent uh, in, uh, in the preaching of the gospel. And however ungodly you are, you're there by the grace of God. Your very body is, is as it were, just a manifestation of, of God's life. Perverted, maybe. Distorted, maybe. Fallen, maybe. But there it is. You understand the wrath of God. One day, um, that you've been so arrogant, presumptuous, and conceited. But one day be dealt with by the righteous judgment of God. So you see, there's something that's very, very, very wonderful. It requires as much power to shine in our heart as it did to bring light out of darkness. And another thing I understand. Light needs an organ that is capable of receiving it. We have a wonderful organ in our human eye. It's built in such a way that it's capable of receiving the light, of receiving. If something happens to my eye, I can be surrounded by light and live in darkness. What a lesson that is for us with the Lord. Something goes wrong with our spiritual eye, the organ that the Holy Spirit has given us for seeing God, who dwelleth in light that is unapproachable. Seeing the Lord. Something goes wrong there, and in the midst of light, we can grope in darkness be able to see anything. The blind spot in our eye. It brings us a lot, you know, when we talk about the speck in someone else's eye, we've got the beam in our own. It's a terrible thing it is, because it just means simply we can't see the light. Something's happened to our, our eye, you see? How important it is just to see that spiritual organ, unimpaired, working properly. I understand that the world is full of light, potential or existence. That is, it's their potential, or it's their in actual existence. So there, I think there's something that's very, very, very wonderful indeed. The scripture calls us sons of the light and of the day. That, of course, is spiritually speaking. But it is a wonderful thing that God always associates dark with night and light with day. That is, that uh, we are sons of the light and sons of the day. Light has a tremendous importance in the Word of God. You've only got to look at the psalm to see the importance that light plays. Always speaking of light, and always the Scripture speaks of light as embodied in God. Now, there are many other things we could say this evening, um, things that I've read and things that I've been told about light, which I think we'll have to leave. <clears throat> but there's something for your investigation anyway. The whole point is that <coughs> light, as far as I can see it, is but a manifestation of that energy which is the very life of God himself. The very light that we have. What a wonderful thing that is. Now you come to 
the second day or day two. What could someone read that, please, from the verses uh, six to eight? The Hebrew word here for heaven or is always used in the plural. It just means heaved up things, simply heaved up things. And it's often difficult in the word of God to distinguish just what it means, whether it means um, what directly surrounds the earth's surface or whether it means what is far beyond the earth's surface. For instance, you see, in verse 20, the firmament there is obviously speaking about um, the atmosphere just surrounding the earth, where the birds fly. We apologise to the listener, but at this point the master tape ran out when it was first being recorded. So the last two or three minutes of Lance's talk is missing.